In this episode, Kate Perry is joined by Guy Morgan from Sherrard Solicitors. They discuss the challenges surrounding practices where partners are planning to retire. Accountancy on Prescription by RBP, one of the leading firms of medical specialist accountants. We know what you find tough, but don't you worry, as we know our stuff. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Accountancy on Prescription. Today, I'm joined by Guy Morgan from Sherrod Solicitors, who deals with medical practices. Hello, Guy. Hello, Kate, and thank you. Yes, my name is Guy Morgan. And I am a partner at Sherrard's Solicitors in London. And I've been working with GP practices and partnerships now for nearly 25 years. And it's an area that I absolutely love. I really like helping practices with the issues that arise And in terms of my firm, Sherrod's, we act and do a lot of partnership work. We also do quite a lot of charities work. So we have got, in fact, a broad-based practice. But certainly one of the issues that I've been seeing, and I think, Kate, you probably agree, is the issue of partners looking to retire from their practices but actually struggling to do so. And that throws up legal issues and also throws up significant accountancy issues. And I think that's something that we're going to have a chat about today. That's right, Guy. In fact, we're really beginning to see with going out to see the accounts for our March year ends this year, partners really struggling. So struggling in various areas, but mainly Income is reducing because they've lost the COVID additional income that they received last year, and also aging and looking towards retirement, as you say, and really struggling to recruit partners. And I think I would have to say that it's a shame they did introduce that new to partnership scheme, which for some reason they've ended. They ended this March. So any new partner coming on board won't get that benefit. And personally, I think it did help with new partners getting persuaded to look at partnership. But where we are now is partners aren't able to recruit for any partner who might now be retiring. So that's one issue. And also struggling financially because we all know that there are fewer doctors. Patients are struggling to get appointments. And so our clients are ending up paying a lot of money to locums to try and produce those appointments for patients to see. And that is therefore damaging their overall profits. And that's quite a difficult situation to manage. But I think with you guys today, if we can look at, you know, how you see a partner might be able to try and get over the issue of either themselves or a partner in their practice wanting to retire and being concerned about the number of partners in a practice getting lower yes. and lower. 
Yeah, and I think in terms of the backdrop to where we are at the moment, yes, I mean, you mentioned the loss of that COVID income, but it's a real, I'm going to say, cocktail of catastrophe that, <laughs> yes. that's emerging at the moment, because not only have you got that, but you've got all the other issues that are affecting every business throughout the country. Yes. You've got interest rates, and the interest rates are, it seems, set to continue to rise and that's having a big impact on practices with borrowing. You've got the impact of the cost of living crisis on practices, and that's coming with higher energy costs. Yes. And that's impacting if you own your own building, then you have got those costs to meet. If you are on leased premises, then you're seeing that play out with much higher service charges. And then you've got an impact generally with, you talk about the locum costs, the increased wage bill that practices are having to pay. So as I say, you've got this real cocktail of doom. But when you're looking to retire from your practice, really the starting point is what you are part of. What is it? Is it the case that you are practicing in partnership or are you a sole trader? Now, if you're a partner in a practice, the starting point there is, do you have a partnership deed? So if you have a partnership deed, and hopefully you can find it, because there have been situations where I've acted for practices in the past, and they've put their partnership deed in a safe place, and they don't know where it is. Yes, as uh, happens a lot with a lot of things that we put in absolutely. that safe place. I'm always doing that with my keys when I come back from holiday and think now I put it in a safe place and can't remember where I put it. But the well, other issue, of course, with partnership agreements is quite often the case they have a draft partnership agreement, absolutely. which actually never got signed. And never got dated. Yes. And they will pull out a document and it will be very much a draft and it might even have some compare text. So lawyers really love producing iterations of documents that have multiple colours and it may still have some of that comparison, compare right or whatever it might be, but that text included. There may be square brackets littered yes. all over the place that indicate, well, is it in isn't it in? So it's hopefully we have a situation here where we are and we do have a partnership deed that has been validly entered into and does actually work as a document. So that's your starting point. And if you do, and if you're fortunate to have that document in place, then there are a number of provisions, key provisions that you need to have a look at. For example, voluntary retirement. And that's really going to be one of your starting points then, looking at those provisions. How much notice do you need to give? Are there any limitations on the number of partners who can serve notice at the same time? So does your partnership deed actually cater for those eventualities? And it may be that you're looking to do something slightly different. It could be 24-hour retirement, for example. And if that is the case, then does your partnership deed cover that and give you the right to come back to work in the practice having retired for 24 hours? 
Yes, that's so, quite an important one. And a lot of our clients actually do do 24-hour retirement. And actually, for those listening, I'll just mention that the one-month 16-hour rule has actually been taken away now. So it is literally now the 24 hours. And we do always try and alert clients to the fact that they do need to make sure that once they do that, they are able to come back into the practice and that their partners aren't going to use that as a means of having them retire completely from the practice without them realising. Because mm. I think that's quite an important one that needs to be clear. And if you don't have a partnership agreement, they need to have some other agreement that allows them to take that 24-hour retirement and return as a partner to the practice. Because essentially, you're removed from the contract for that 24 hours, aren't you? Yeah. Absolutely. But it is not particularly straightforward. There are a number of procedural matters that you need to cover off. You need to ensure that you give notice to the NHS pensions agency. Um, you need to complete an appropriate form. So there are a variety of things you need to do. You also need to make sure that what will now be the ICB are aware of those plans. So there's a variety of different things you need to go to cover off. And that's where someone like Kate and her team can really make that difference to you in something that if that's the route you're planning to go down, you need to get this right. Yes. And often if we're looking at 24-hour retirement, very often a partner will come back on a lower share so we can help produce drawings, projections and things to sort of show the practice you know, how they're going to replace any sessions that are dropped and what the future drawings projections might be. But in general, for a partner looking to retire, let's say, completely from the practice, the official notice is three months. I think in your partnership agreement, it's likely to be minimum, I would say, of probably six months, if yes. not a year. So that needs to be looked at to make sure that everybody who requires notice has the appropriate amount of notice time. Yes, absolutely right. And other key provisions to consider again, if you have a partnership deed, what does it say about the arrangements for repayment of your capital yeah. and current account balances? And again, there is a lot of liaising with your practice accountants in that regard. And then one of the key areas in a partnership, you can't practice without them. It's your premises. Yes. You need property and the premises arrangements are key on any retirement. And then just thinking about what the premises that you have actually are. So are they freehold? And if they're freehold, is it the case that you're one of the owners? And if you're one of the owners in that freehold, then you want your share, as it were, out. And how do you get your share out? Well, your share needs to be, for one thing, valued and not just valued by any old valuer. You really do need a specialist GP surveyor to carry out that valuation. That's essential. 
because the method of valuation is not just talking about a strict valuation on the bricks and mortar. You're also taking into account the reimbursement side of things, so the rent reimbursement, and that's pretty critical in the valuation. But that's where you need a specialist valuer to come in and assist you on that. And then if your property is freehold, it is likely, very likely, to be mortgaged. So there will be a lender involved and will the sale of your share cover the debt? Your share of the debt? Is it a situation where there could be a negative equity situation? So is there a negative equity scenario in play? And these are things that you need to, particularly with the lending situation, you really do need to bring on board your lender and your relationship manager at your lender at an early stage, just to understand what your potential liability is. And that is a conversation that usually takes place with the lender in conjunction with your accountants. Yes. Well, one of the issues we've got, though, is there's often nobody in a position to actually buy the premises. So that also will go into the partnership agreement as to whether you are required to sell your premises, whether the partners, remaining partners are in a position to buy. We've actually got one of our clients in a position where they've got a new partner. The new partner is willing to buy because that is one of the issues, of course, that new partners often aren't keen to buy into premises. But what we've got at the moment with the mortgage rates being so high, his new mortgage that would buy out the ex-partner, in fact, I think it may be more than one partner, but to buy out the ex-partner is not enough, or rather the rental reimbursement that he will get in is now not enough to cover the higher interest rate that he's being asked to pay. So now, obviously, he's having second thoughts about well, do I want to buy into this property when not only the capital won't be covered, but not even all the interest on the mortgage that I'm going to have to pay will be covered. So we are tending to get the situation where we've got, with regard to the building alone, a last man standing, because nobody's wanting to buy in and share the property ownership. But we have quite a lot of cases where we've got ex-partners who retired a few years ago, but still remain property landlords, which is another awkward situation. And maybe leases are required in that situation. So it is a complicated area and and I think really needs to be looked at carefully before or at about the time retirement is thought of and not left to something sort of at the last minute, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's really important for a practice to get their house in order as and when retirement's occur, often you will have retired partners who no longer have any interest in the practice. Their names are still on the registered title for the property. And I've had situations in the past where a retired partner who has incidentally been paid out their share, their name is still on the title, and they've embarked on a around-the-world trip on a boat. And it's very difficult to try and track somebody down. I think in one case, one of the partners was somewhere off Papua New Guinea. And it becomes something of a challenge, particularly if 
a new partner is then wanting to buy in and the finance arrangements do stack up. But normally the lender's offer of finance will be fixed in time and we're then trying to complete within a set time scale. And it becomes awfully difficult then when you're trying to track someone down. And it's even more difficult where there perhaps has been a degree of bad blood between the parties when they've left. That becomes very difficult to then try to resolve quickly. And that really emphasizes the need to try and deal with things at the time and deal with everything at the time rather than perhaps parking issues or trying to do things oneself. So it really is absolutely essential to bring on board specialist professional advisors at the earliest possible stage. And I appreciate at the moment with, as we've talked about, the cost of living crisis, with falling practice incomes and falling drawings for partners, this is a big, big issue. And, you know, you've got other things to think about, other challenges. And often I will find that a practice, you're balancing, juggling so many different challenges that these issues get parked and put to one side. And unfortunately, what I see and what Kate, sure you've seen is that practices then have to spend a significant amount of time and resource after the event trying to resolve them. And in some cases, there isn't really a neat resolution to this or a neat solution. No, that's right. So we're talking about premises, but what about the case where there's lease premises? Because that has its own issues, because obviously you might have a retiring partner on the lease and potentially perhaps a more recently joined partner not actually named on the lease. And that's another issue. Absolutely. So I'm really pleased you've raised the issue of leases because, yes, many practices are subject to leasehold arrangements. The starting point would be the assignment provisions in the lease. Also, looking at your registered leasehold title and checking the named parties on that registered leasehold title and making sure they are in fact up to date, because that's a separate exercise to be carried out in conjunction with the assignment on the lease. But in terms of the assignment, what does it say about the landlord's requirements on assignment? If it has been, and if the lease has been drafted or you've had the involvement of a specialist GP legal advisor, the likelihood is that there will be greater flexibility in the lease in terms of assignment, and there should be greater flexibility for incoming and outgoing partners. So incoming and outgoing partners and the scenario of retirement should be covered off specifically, and it should be made relatively easy for what is generally bread and butter stuff for a practice with partners coming in and going out. That should be made relatively easy in a lease. And it should be the case the incoming partner merely has to enter into a deed 
with the landlord and the remaining partners whereby the incoming partner agrees to be bound by the terms of the lease. So that's something that the landlord will want to see. He will want to ensure, she will want to ensure the landlord that the incoming partner, the incoming tenant is on the hook. But it may be that the lease is not so friendly. It may be that a specialist wasn't involved in its preparation, and it may be that it requires on assignment. There could be provisions for a guarantor. There could be provisions for a rent deposit. There's there's various things that potentially could apply. And I think if the situation where the assignment provisions are potentially onerous, it's always worth trying to have a conversation with the landlord about whether they really require these provisions, given the covenant strength of the tenant overall. So I think it's worth doing. But the big challenges we've got, whether it's a partnership agreement or a lease or indeed looking at your title, is the language that's used. Now, I've been doing this for over 25 years. I've seen lots of documents. Generally, I like language. I like looking at these documents. But often they're jolly difficult to follow. And sometimes they're not drafted particularly clearly. Sometimes they make absolutely no sense at all, even to me. I'm glad you say that because I read quite a few documents. In fact, I was having an email transfer with one solicitor and the language that was used was so legal, even in an email. This isn't in the legal document. This was in an email. And I couldn't quite interpret what they were trying to say because they were using legal terminology. And I think that's where a lot of us who haven't been trained as solicitors do struggle with any legal document. The legal language sometimes obviously has to be written in a certain way so that it definitely ensures that within the law, it's saying what we want it to be saying. And that's why you would want to bring a solicitor in, actually, when you have got a slightly wordy document that perhaps you get a solicitor to actually properly interpret it for you. Absolutely. I think that's essential. But also, does the solicitor pass the mum test? You're laughing, Kate, but the mum test years ago, I worked for some years in a specialist public sector practice almost exclusively public sector. And my supervising partner at the time said, well, it's got to pass. Whatever you write has to pass. Never mind what you're reading. What you write has to pass the mum test. And that is, quite simply, if you showed that to your mother, would she understand it? Now, he said, now your mother might be a high court judge or a brain surgeon. (laughs) So I need to qualify what I've said. But generally, is somebody who is not trained in the law are they going to be able to understand what you've said and what you've written? And usually it's a case that if I don't understand what I'm reading, someone else isn't going to understand it either, and it needs explanation. And it may be that on occasion, and with leases, sometimes we have to change the wording because the wording doesn't work. And the mechanism for doing that is by a deed of variation. But you do need the consent of the parties who are involved in the lease to be party to that. So if the property is leasehold and you're a named tenant, say your retirement arrangements need to be read subject to the lease, the landlord consent is normally required on an assignment. An assignment is the technical word for the transfer of your interest in the 
leasehold and there may also be other requirements under the lease that need to be complied with other hoops that you need to jump through. So it's not straightforward. And the other thing to bear in mind is that if there is somebody else involved, it might be that you, and this is where English property law in particular starts to become rather complicated, you could easily find that your lease is one of a number of leases that have been granted over the same property and your landlord is an intermediate landlord and there is somebody else, someone else who has a superior interest. And where that's the case, and I've got a number of practices I act for in London have situations where they may be the immediate landlord. They've then got their landlord. So you may have a situation where the practice lets some of their premises. So they are the landlord to the tenants, for instance, a pharmacy tenant, for example, their landlords to that pharmacy tenant or to perhaps some services being provided by a local NHS trust. And they, the practice, the partners in the practice, are landlord to that party. However, the practice themselves have a landlord, and that landlord may in turn have another landlord. It starts to get rather complicated, and you often need to prepare a diagram to try and understand how many people have an legal interest in the property. And where you have multiple parties involved, you're going into the realms then of having to satisfy requirements in other documents, other arrangements, and get consents from other people. So that's just something to bear in mind. And it starts to become pretty complicated in terms of the different documents that are required in order to get an assignment through. So it's just one thing to bear in mind. There aren't many practices who have such a complicated structure, but there are. I do come across them from time to time. Yes. So it's quite important, really, for the retiring partner to make sure their name gets removed from all of this, because otherwise they could still be held responsible for anything that might occur in future, such as dilapidations. But before we move on, I feel we can't really talk about leases without mentioning NHS property services, because one of the issues we do have in our accounts is service charge issues. So I've no doubt that most people listening to this podcast, if it's not in their own practice, will know of partners in practices where we've got these historical problems with regard to the service charges. So I'm aware that on a lot of our clients who are in such properties, where we have provided for service charges which haven't yet been paid and haven't yet been agreed. Now, what I am aware of through some of our clients is that they are finally starting to sit down with practices and come to an agreement to resolve all these old amounts of service charges that haven't been paid. But that's something for a retiring partner to keep in mind in that we've made estimated provisions which may be either overstated or understated. So that's something perhaps that should also be carefully considered and ideally try and bring forward that meeting with NHS Property Services to get it resolved. So it does look, for anyone out there who's wondering what's going on, it does look as if they're starting to move on this. 
and resolve. So we have had a couple of clients have everything be renegotiated, if you like, and resolved now and a new revised amount of service charges going forward. But having spoken about the property, so I'm just wondering, so we're talking about retiring partners and incoming partners, but what if we haven't got an incoming partner? So we have in certain circumstances got partnerships where every partner is, say, in their 50s and all potentially looking to retire within sort of close succession. And then maybe thinking, well, if we're not going to get any new partners join and with the falling profits and difficult financial situation, some of our clients and particularly single-handed perhaps who have come up to retirement and so don't have a partner and haven't got a partner on board, what they might do if actually they don't want to perhaps continue with the practice at all. So I know we've got situations where mergers are considered for single-handed practices, but quite often with falling profits, these mergers aren't necessarily going ahead now. So, So we've still got people stuck in positions where they're trying to retire themselves, but sort of find themselves in a position where they sort of aren't in a position to do that. Do you have any suggestions as to what a partner or single-handed practitioner might do with regard to their contract? So there's no real magic solution here. You're in a difficult position. You either have to seek a merger partner, and I think it's absolutely essential to open a dialogue at the earliest stage with the LMC and also the ICB. I mean, the LMC may be able to assist with supporting you. But if you are really struggling to find anybody who is wanting to merge, and I say merge, I mean, what are we talking about? Really, it's, you know, the reality is it's a takeover, effectively. And if a takeover is just not viable, then you are really left with no other option but to consider effectively terminating your contract. And that involves having to serve notice under the contract. And then it's a case of the ICB either having to put the contract out to tender or disperse the patient list. But you've got other issues then to consider if you're a freehold practice and you've got a mortgage well how are you then going to deal with the debt that needs to be paid off i mean you're going to be in a situation where you potentially will have to sell the practice that's what you're left with having to do you will need to if you're going to sell it for alternative use then you'll need to have planning to be able to do that you may decide to just sell it to a developer and then you may try to negotiate different arrangements you could decide to negotiate some sort of overage but this is starting to become quite complicated and again on the premises side anything that requires negotiation 
unless you are a real whiz with commercial property negotiation. And, you know, there are one or two practices I have dealt with over the years who've had one person in that practice who has been very successful in their own right as a landlord. That's very rare, but very occasionally it happens. But unless you're someone like that, you really have to have specialist advice. And you really do need a specialist surveyor who is used to negotiating property deals and can try and negotiate the best deal for you. The other thing you need to think about is where you are winding up the practice effectively, what happens to the staff? So you're going to have to deal with redundancy. You've got to settle all the debts, all the liabilities, and potentially liabilities aren't certain liabilities won't emerge until later on. So there's a lot to think about, and it may well be that in that situation, you are out of pocket. And more so now with the way certainly interest rates are moving. Yes. I mean, I think we can't get away from the fact that we are within the primary NHS world in difficult situations. We've got aging GPs who clearly at some point want to retire. We've got young GPs who don't appear to want to join partnerships as they did in the old days. So it is starting to become a problem. And I am aware that even largish practices, so I think six or 7,000 list size, may well end up being dispersed. And you might think, well, that's quite a lot of patients. Well, yes, it is quite a lot of patients and it affects the surrounding practices in some cases detrimentally because they suddenly get this whole raft of new patients and struggle to deal with them. You know, and I know the governments are trying to put more money in towards access. I think that's going to possibly go to the PCNs and whether that's going to filter down to the true coalface of the doctor in practice remains to be seen. But I think we have to understand that we're in difficult times with all the financial pressures that you've already mentioned from elsewhere with the cost of living crisis. You know, it's not going to be straightforward in the years ahead, I think, unless something changes. I think the orthodox advice really is that prevention is better than cure. And that's what everybody will tell you. An appropriate analogy. (laughs) uh, Absolutely. But how does that help somebody who is then in a situation where they have interests in a couple of premises? They may have a leasehold interest in one premises. They may own the freehold of another one. They may be in an area where the property prices traditionally haven't been particularly high, where it's not the case that with the freehold, you can say, well, fine, we'll go for alternative use, planning permission, we can redevelop the site and build so many residential units. And therefore, that's our get out card. In many areas of the country, you won't be fortunate enough to be able to do that. And really, it's a case of, I'm going to say, damage limitation. And that's what you're going to have to look at unless you are going to be able to ride out the next few years. And I have in the past had situations because this isn't the first financial and economic crisis that we've had in the last 25 years. You know, it's cyclical. And certainly in previous situations, I've acted for practices who have been in exactly this situation where partners want to retire, but nobody wants to come in because interest rates again are too high. It's just, it doesn't make financial sense. And they've just effectively stagnated 
but they've kept things going until such time as things change. But I'd be staggered if there's any dramatic change in 2024. I think looking ahead, it may well be that you have a change of government. I think inevitably with the change of government, late 2024, 2025, there will be an increased focus on trying to do something with primary care. Quite what that thing is, I'm not entirely sure, but it's going to need something really quite dramatic to try to solve what we have. And the other thing that we've not really touched on at all is just the impact on communities of migration. But you have migration and you suddenly have practices who are struggling as it is anyway. But in parts of the country, you have significant numbers of people who now need access to primary care, who've recently moved to an area And that's something that can't be underestimated. And the front page of the Evening Standard focused on how schools are struggling in London because of falling people numbers. The pupils are going, leaving London, families leaving London to go out of London, having a big impact on the viability of schools in certain parts of London. Now, if you then think, well, families leaving, where are they going? Well, they're moving somewhere. They need to register with a GP practice. And again, just more and more pressure building up there. Yes. And space is always an issue, I know, with our practices. So a lot of them say, well, we could expand, we could take on more patients, but we haven't got the space. We haven't got the surgical rooms to take on the doctors to see the patients. Although I have to say COVID has helped with that because I think there's a lot of e-consultation and video consults that are helping with that issue. But I think for the moment, then, we've probably covered at least an element of what maybe more senior partners need to be considering. And I think the takeaway is really you need to think ahead and plan ahead as early as you can, because some of these things that we've discussed aren't quick fixes and may take some time to actually go through paperwork and resolve in the correct way. Mm. There's actually one interesting example that I worked on a few years ago. It's an acting for a sole trader. And he decided, and when he did it, he was probably in his, well, I know he was in his 50s, probably mid 50s. He decided he would bring on board a developer. They would redevelop the surgery. They would extend it. So that's what they'd do. And this was effectively then. So he owned the freehold. He entered into a sale and leaseback arrangement with the developer. And at the same time, and the only way we could get the deal through was with a life insurance policy being put in place and assigned to the developer who then became landlord. And there was also a, I'm going to use the word fluffy commitment, some fluffy wording in the contract dealing with the sole practitioner using all reasonable endeavours to try to find one or more partners to join him. But the developer in those circumstances was happy to go ahead with the sale and lease back of the surgery 
So sometimes there are slightly more innovative left field solutions that could be available. That is very rare, I have to say. And I haven't seen that particular example involving a cell practitioner being repeated. And it would obviously involve again and be predicated by value and really how this could be structured to give the developer a return on what is an investment. Yes. Okay. Well, I think we should wrap that up now. So thank you very much, Guy, for giving us your insights into that. And hopefully our clients and anyone else listening to the podcast will find that useful. So if I could say to everyone, if you enjoyed the podcast today, perhaps you would like and subscribe to us. We send these podcasts out fortnightly. And it just remains for me to say thank you and goodbye to Guy. And goodbye from myself uh, until the next time. Thank you very much. You have been listening to RBP's Accountancy on Prescription podcast. For any updates, please visit www.rbp.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at RBPCA. The contents of this podcast is for general guidance and informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of advice. The information provided by RBP is of a general nature. Appropriate and tailored advice or independent research should be obtained before making any decisions. RBP does not accept any liability for any loss or damage which is incurred from you acting or not acting as a result of listening to Accountancy on Prescription. 